Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis XIV, reminding you to please rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you're listening to it right now. Follow us on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V on Twitter and Instagram. Buy our merch at poppantheonpod.com. And subscribe to our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, at patreon.com slash poppantheon or by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. Over there, we're doing weekly bonus episodes of the show. Plus, you get access to our Discord channel and so many other great perks. Again, patreon.com slash poppantheon or click the link in the show notes of this episode. Finally, Gorgeous Gorgeous is happening two times coming up. One is this weekend in Los Angeles. This will be on February 17th, Saturday at Los Globos and Silver Lake. I am so excited for this. So hope to see some of you guys this Saturday at Gorgeous Gorgeous LA. And our next New York City party will be happening on March 9th at the Sultan Room in Bushwick. Tickets for both of those parties are available in the show notes of this episode, so I'm hoping to see people out all across this great land at Gorgeous Gorgeous. This week's episode is a deep dive into the career of 90s pop rock icon Sheryl Crow. This was a really fascinating deep dive and discussion, and I really hope that those of us who remember Sheryl Crow and all of her amazing hits get to take a trip down memory lane with this, and for those who are less familiar with Sheryl Crow, get a taste into how she's obviously been a huge influence on a lot of contemporary pop figures from Boy Genius to Haim to Maren Morris and Casey Musgraves, so this is an episode for everybody both those who feel nostalgic for every day is a winding road and those who might want to learn something new about a great icon of 90s pop and 90s rock. So without further ado, here is Pop Pantheon, Cheryl Crow. Cheryl Crow's music engenders the sensation of having always been there. A true and proud classicist steeped in and proudly referential to the rock gods of her youth, like the Rolling Stones, Mavis Staples, Eric Clapton, and Stevie Nicks, Cheryl's biggest hits, often freewheeling, slightly gravelly, but slightly glistening rock bangers replete with absolutely infectious pop hooks, feel like they're part of the American songbook. And yet, Cheryl is also very much a product of a specific moment of 90s pop culture, when, quote, women with guitars took center stage, from Liz Fair to Alanis Morissette to Courtney Love, each doing their take on Gen X pop feminism in a way that feels completely of its moment, and also strangely prescient of contemporary discourse. What's more, Crow's impact and style seems absolutely critical to a plethora of modern superstars, from Boy Genius to Maren Morris, Casey Musgraves, Haim, and the list goes on. The point here is that Cheryl Crow is very much her own thing, her own space-time continuum, a representation of some nebulous form of classic pop rock that's kinda evergreen, precisely dislodged from time, and yet that, at its best, hits just right every time. Cheryl Crow was born in Kennett, Missouri in 1962 to a piano teacher and a lawyer and trumpet player. Cheryl grew up listening to Rosemary Clooney and Judy Garland, and in high school, she served as a majorette, an all-star track athlete, and a member of the Pep Club. At university, Cheryl earned a degree in classical piano while playing keyboards and singing in a cover band called Cashmere at night. After school, she worked as a music teacher in small-town Missouri and sang in bands on the weekends. There, Cheryl also began her long and, um, 
winding road to pop superstardom, singing jingles for McDonald's and Toyota for extra money before catching the fame bug and moving to LA, where, in 1987, she landed a gig singing backup for Michael Jackson's blockbuster Bad Tour. Cheryl used the entree of the Jackson Tour to become a session musician and songwriter for hire, providing vocals for Stevie Wonder, Rod Stewart, Belinda Carlisle, and Jimmy Buffett, and writing songs for Celine Dion, Tina Turner, and Winona Judd. In 1991, she signed a record deal with A&M and recorded a glossy generic pop album with Sting's producer Hugh Pagnum before scrapping it, believing it to be slick and overproduced. Around that same time, Cheryl started dating a musician from Sacramento, Kevin Gilbert, who had just engineered Michael Jackson's 1991 single Dangerous and written songs with Madonna for the Dick Tracy soundtrack. He invited Cheryl to join his Tuesday night songwriting group in Pasadena, which quickly became a vehicle for composing what would become Cheryl's debut album. Released in 1993, Tuesday Night Music Club, a jangly, sardonic, gritty but polished collection of roots rock come pop, dropped amidst little expectations from either Cheryl, the club, or her label. She dropped two singles, the country ballad Run Baby Run and the road trip anthem Leaving Las Vegas to muted reception. But the third single, a borderline novelty talks sung, irony-laden, impressionistic country rock disco peon to LA beatniks, All I Wanna Do, unexpectedly caught on at adult contemporary and mainstream top 40 radio. The single took off and launched Sheryl Crow, then 31 years old, into the top five of the Billboard Hot 100 and began Tuesday Night Music Club's ascent into the stratosphere. Following All I Wanna, Cheryl quickly scored another top five hit with the moody, evocative folk ballad Strong Enough. The album itself slowly became a mega hit. It took a year to go platinum, but eventually shipped 13 million copies worldwide. In 1995, Cheryl cleaned up at the Grammys, taking home Best New Artist, Best Female Vocal Performance, and Record of the Year, firmly cementing her as an establishment-beloved, widely appealing breakout star. But all was not rosy with Cheryl's star-making turn. The collective approach to creating Tuesday Night Music Club meant that its surprise success led to battles over credit, particularly after she split from Gilbert, and questions about Cheryl being a product of her Tuesday Night Club band whose names were all over the debut record rather than her own creation. This, on top of the credibility struggle inherent to all women in rock music, tarnished Crow's otherwise extraordinary ascent in the eyes of purists. She responded by self-producing her 1996 self-titled follow-up, working primarily with just one songwriter, Jeff Trott, and composing a handful of songs alone. Turning towards a less polished sound that was closer to the alternative radio rock of the mid 90s, as well as more idiosyncratic and personal songwriting, the record was met with critical acclaim and is still widely considered Cheryl's signature work. She made her political views clear, criticizing Walmart's gun sale policy on Love is a Good Thing, and sang about abortion on Hard to Make a Stand. The infectious Every Day is a Winding Road took flight on alternative radio and peaked at number 11 on the Hot 100, and the lead single, If It Makes You Happy, a self-lacerating look at her conflict over her own overnight success, hit the top 10.
Two years later, Cheryl returned with another self-produced record, 1998's The Globe Sessions. This quieter, more introspective album didn't reach the commercial heights of either of the first two, but it made the top five and moved more than one million copies. It also produced another signature hit for Cheryl, the groovy slow burn My Favorite Mistake, rumored, untruthfully according to Cheryl, to be about a brief affair with Eric Clapton. The next year, she made her acting debut alongside her then-boyfriend actor Owen Wilson in the drama The Minus Man and appeared on Prince's Rave Unto the Joy Fantastic, which included a cover of Every Day is a Winding Road. She capped off the 90s with a live album recorded in New York Central Park that included appearances by Clapton, Stevie Nicks, and the Chicks. In 2002, Cheryl scored her sixth top 40 hit with the breezy feel-good Soak Up the Sun, the lead single off her fourth studio album, Come On, Come On, which represented a more direct turn towards pop radio and was her highest debut yet, bowing at number two on the Billboard 200. It went on to sell more than two million copies and was quickly followed by another big commercial success, a duet with Kid Rock for his album Cocky called Picture. The gold-certified single peaked at number four, becoming Cheryl's highest charting since All I Want to Do nearly 10 years earlier. While promoting Come On, Come On in picture, Cheryl vocally protested the Iraq War, wearing a shirt that read, I don't believe in your war, Mr. Bush, on Good Morning America, and a no-war guitar strap at the 2003 Grammys. The same year, Cheryl closed nearly a decade of pop success with a compilation album, The Very Best of Cheryl Crow, which went triple platinum and reached number two on the Billboard 200. She promoted the album with a cover of Cat Stevens's The First Cut is the Deepest that served as both her final solo top 40 country hit and her final top 20 on the Hot 100. Cheryl's last album, to earn platinum certification was 2005's Wildflower, but she's continued to regularly release varied and often critically acclaimed albums since, including a return to Roots Rock on 2008's Detour and experimentations with vintage R&B on 2010's 100 Miles from Memphis. In 2013, she officially embraced the country sound she's long flirted with, marketing her ninth studio album, Feels Like Home, as her debut country record. In 2019, she recruited an all-star cast of widely varied musicians for an album of collaborations, Threads, that featured every everyone from Stevie Nicks to Chuck D, Keith Richards, Willie Nelson, and St. Vincent. Cheryl had hinted that Threads may be her final record, but earlier this year, she released a song called Alarm Clock as the first single off her upcoming 12th studio album, Evolution. Cheryl Crow has sold more than 50 million records worldwide. She has six platinum albums, one platinum single, five gold singles, and three top 10 singles. Cheryl Crow has won nine Grammy Awards, four ASCAP Music Awards, five BMI Pop Awards, three American Music Awards, Awards, one Academy of Country Music Award, one Billboard Music Award, one Brit Award, and one People's Choice Award. Cheryl Crow has been ranked as one of the 100 greatest women in music by VH1 and one of the top 50 country artists by Billboard. In 2023, she was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Here with me to talk about the career and work of Cheryl Crow is music journalist Natalie Weiner. Okay, so I'm here with freelance writer based in Dallas who's covering music and sports, Natalie Weiner. Natalie, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. This was a very fascinating deep dive for me. I think as we were sort of off micing about just now, I was born in the late 80s. I grew up in the 90s. I was very much part of the generation that grew up experiencing Sheryl Crow, as I was saying to you, kind of through my mom in a weird way. Fair enough. Yes. And my mom's a cool chick, but I think what was interesting about it, going back through it right now, 
now and reliving her discography in the way that I did prepping for this episode is the way that Cheryl Crow feels dislodged from time in a weird way. There was this <laughs> sense where I was trying to situate, all right, here's the moment that Cheryl Crow exists in and here's why she exists in this moment. And that's something I'm always trying to do on this show. And all I could think about the whole time listening to this was it makes a lot of sense to me why Cheryl Crow was of great appeal to my mom, someone who grew up loving the music of her generation, having that define her identity very much. Rock classicism is what spoke to her, what defined her generation, what still animates her passion for music these days. And Cheryl, I think, almost in a craftsman woman-like way, seems to speak directly to that era of music, although she exists in an entirely different era of music. So it was hard to get my arms around how to situate Cheryl in the broader pop star aspect. But that was my main experience here was kind of feeling a deeper connection almost to why Cheryl Crow was such a huge thing for my parents, weirdly enough. (laughs) Not that I didn't appreciate her and I love these songs, but they almost feel dislodged from time in a way. Does that register for you? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think she's interesting because it's easy to put her in the bucket of 90s woman rocker, you know, which we so often unfairly group women together. even when they are not necessarily connected. (laughs) A monolith. (laughs) Anyway, not to go down that whole tangent already, but I was looking at it and as I was looking at Tuesday Night Music Club was released one month after Exile and Guyville. Oh, wow. And it's like Cheryl Crow and Liz Fair almost could not be more different. Right. I guess they are both Midwestern, you know, but the musical approach that they take, as you're describing, is so different. Right. In a really interesting way, even though they're both kind of under the rock umbrella more broadly. But yeah, I think her nostalgia and the way she filters it through cool 90s girl with coastal sensibilities, but also she's at her core, this good old-fashioned Midwestern girl from near Memphis. I was listening to an interview where she's like describing herself as influenced by the Delta. You know, (laughs) I don't know if a lot of us are like listening to Sheryl Crow and thinking about Delta blues, you know, but really she sees herself through that lens. And she's also music literate in a way that we might not imagine most pop stars are. She went to school for it. She was a music teacher, all of this kind of stuff. I think the idea that she She was very much of her moment in some ways, but also making music that feels fairly timeless, all things considered. It's an interesting juxtaposition. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really interesting point about it is the way that it's so classically minded and yet doesn't feel directly tied to any specific moment at the same time is a really interesting characterization. And I do think, obviously, there's a lot of specifically 90s things about her that I think, as you were gesturing at, don't really come through necessarily like in the musical aesthetic choices, but maybe come through more in just who she was and her politics. Obviously, she was incredibly outspoken and really I think translated the ethos of awareness through rock music for a 90s feminist generation. She was extraordinarily outspoken about numerous wars. It felt like she was able to translate the ethos of the 60s and 70s into a 90s context that spoke a lot to people that grew up in the 60s and 70s at the same time. Like, she's somehow of both of those eras. I kept weirdly thinking about Lana Del Rey when I was listening to her, both because there is this sort of nostalgic classicism, this ability to synthesize American musical history and tropes, this sort of obsession with Americana, and then also an almost stream of consciousness writing style. I feel like she's at once poetic and almost 
stream of consciousness and also very deeply ingrained and focused on the mundane and is able to kind of like render both of those things, aspects of everyday life, aspects of working class life, and at the same time speak and flourishes. And sometimes her songs, especially a song like All I Want to Do, even being a really good example of this, where it's like, what is she even talking about? What is she even saying? So I think that there was just this feeling with her, you know, Lana's a weird comp, but I did think about her a little bit of just kind of this deeply celebratory discography of Americana and American music history and like tropes. That was the thing that I most latched onto maybe in some ways about the entirety of her discography. Yeah. Lana is an interesting comparison from the Americana sensibility of it. I would say I think Cheryl comes across to me as considerably more earnest yes. than Lana Del Rey, you know? Absolutely. But it's funny, though, because I think she touches on a lot of Gen X anxiety and, like, counterculture vibes, you know what I mean? Yes. The sort of fighting the establishment kind of thing, but it winds up getting so toned down just in the way she presents it in her music and public persona. And it might not even be her fault. She might be trying to make it a big part of her persona, but just the forces at work being like, well, no, 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 you're like a nice blonde pop star lady. Right. I think there's a little bit of interesting tension there, but I think her music is almost the bridge between the ironic detachment of the more sort of biting, I guess, right. rock types of the 90s and the Hootie and the Blowfish <laughs> types. <laughs> right. Well, her best music, I feel like, walks this edge between being sardonic and being extraordinarily pop-minded at the same time. Yeah, exactly. There's this real balancing act that I think is pretty beautiful in her best songs. You get this real edge, never alienating edge, Mm -hmm. like a very accessible, relatable edge. Right. Then paired with her incredibly accomplished pop songwriting. Yes. The hooks on these things are just incredible. So catchy. (laughs) And a lot of good ones. Going back and listening to those first three or four albums in particular, every song, even like the fillery deep cuts on some of these records, not one comes complete without an absolutely slamming hook. Yeah. There's another world where Cheryl Crow is a prolific Nashville song machine songwriter. Yeah, that's true. She is just so good at writing rock slash country-esque nodding pop records. She's just a classicist in that way too. And that was really fun to remember. And also just seems like a great person. That was the last thing I want to say before we get into this. Watching interviews with her, she seems like genuinely down to earth. I was honestly inspired by the fact that she doesn't totally make sense. Her lineage is hard to put your finger on totally, but <laughs> that's what makes her awesome. Like she did her own thing and it really is inspiring in that way. Mm-hmm. She, she kind of just proudly is her own thing. It's hard to put your finger on exactly how she fits in, but I think that that's kind of what defines her. Yeah. She's just kind of like Cheryl Crow. It's like its own musical universe. I mean, I am lucky enough to be able to say that I have spoken to Cheryl Crow in person and interviewed her and she was such a delight and a sweet person and so kind to me. Not everybody is like that. Yeah. <laughs> if you're going through the press gauntlet, there's plenty of reasons to not be like that. A hundred percent. I just walked away from the interview definitely being like, I wish I was Cheryl Crow's best friend. Yeah. Yes. Oh, for sure. In my heart, we are best friends, but she doesn't know that. I think that girl next door approachability is also a huge underlying tenant of the Cheryl Crow persona. Obviously, she's gorgeous and very talented and not the girl next door in many ways, but in some ways, she also is kind of the girl next door. Like, you get this down-home feeling from Cheryl Crow. Yeah. And I think that that's obviously been a massive part of her appeal. And she was also incredibly successful, and I'm excited to kind of get into how that all came to pass and why that is. And it's interesting 
interesting road, I think, that she took to that moment. So can you give us a little bit about Cheryl's backstory, just kind of like what we need to know about Cheryl's early life and upbringing that feels germane to understanding her as a musician and pop figure? Yeah, definitely. So she's from Kennett, Missouri. My understanding is that the closest major city is Memphis, actually. Mm -hmm. You know, even though Memphis is not in Missouri, whatever. Yes. <laughs> the way that these things work. Sure. She basically played music growing up, was not necessarily hell-bent on becoming a performer from the jump, but mm. her parents both played music and... She played music and in her lovely little middle class Midwestern upbringing, that was just a facet of right. it. And she went to the University of Missouri and started studying music there. And I believe there she started playing in a cover band on the weekends yes. called Cashmere, you know, for fellow students, presumably. So she just started to lean into it while she was in school. And I believe that's also when she started writing her own songs. But again, this is all kind of she's getting a music education degree. Right. So still pretty pragmatic, not necessarily like, I'm going to be a star. Right. You know? And like a formalist, somebody that really learned how to play piano and knew composition and was deeply ingrained in like the rock greats, like the Stones and Fleetwood Mac and the Beatles. And, you know, I heard her speaking about looking at Bonnie Raitt and being like, oh, mm -hmm. that's what a woman holding a guitar should be like in its most ideal form. Thank you. You know, we overuse this term, but she's a real student of what she does, it seems to me. For sure. And I think thinking about the soundtrack of that time, as you mentioned, or that specific place in time, I guess I would say. Yes. She's in the Midwest in the 80s, Yeah, you know? And so it is a lot of that kind of heartland rock vibe. Sure. And she's also probably listening to a lot of country. I saw in one interview where she was like, I heard a lot of country and I didn't really like it at the time. Oh, interesting. But it's totally a part of her musical DNA. Yes. That is something that she was listening to a lot. Right. As is probably something like Leonard Skinner. You know what I mean? Exactly. But like so much better than Leonard Skinner. Yeah, so much better. So much better. No, I totally get you. But I just think there's something about that kind of rollicking feel that feels important to understanding some of the songs like Every Day is a Winding Road or something like that. Totally. I mean, just the bluesiness, the fun danciness too. Yes. Those feel like Southern rock traits. Totally. Like certain aspects of classicism and formalism and then also just a real sense of pop centrism at the same time, like a radio friendliness. Sheryl Crow really walks this line between being like a singer-songwriter of integrity and also being a pop diva. Like there's a line that she walks there. Totally. Another interesting part of that dichotomy for me is while she's studying guitar and piano and all this stuff, she also in high school was like a majorette. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a cheerleader. Did FFA, did beauty pageants. You right. Know? <laughs> and also speaks to a lot of the things, the ways that she maybe was perceived or not taken seriously or given the cred that she was due at a certain point, like even in the 90s, I felt like there's this kind of ongoing, unrealized recognition. Or at the time, it was kind of, a, I mean, I think maybe now we look back mm -hmm. differently on it. She obviously has been inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at this point. But there was this feeling I got reading contemporaneous criticism of her in the 90s of not really taking her seriously because I think of some of that pop intuition, because she wasn't really conversant with grunge and like the bigger kind of more credible rock styles of the 90s. She was sort of seen as pastiche or lacking in depth or something like that. Definitely. And I think... 
because she isn't performatively intellectual, really. Right, you know? right, right. She doesn't make that a huge part of her bit. Right, that earnesty. Exactly. She's like, I like playing music and this is what I do. Right. And I think because her songs do take some leaps that are a little bit outside of what we think of as down the middle, rock, pop, whatever, there is a little bit of experimentation there. Yes. But it's like you're saying, easy enough to elide that into like, yeah, whatever, it's still just some girl mm, singing, yeah. playing guitar. And I mean, well, we'll get into all this stuff later, but being Michael Jackson's backup singer is her origin story doesn't necessarily feed right. like rockist credibility, yes. you know? All right. So she's studying music. I mean, let's get into that part of it. An important interlude, I think, before we talk about Michael Jackson, which obviously is a fascinating part of her origin story. A whole lot to unpack there. <laughs> yes. Is that she kind of gets her start writing jingles. I mean, talk about a commercially minded sort of sensibility. She meets this local musician, Jay Oliver, who has has like a basement in his parents' house in St. Louis and he kind of coaches her on writing jingles and she is very successful in this milieu and she has a big McDonald's jingle, I guess, that she ends up making a little money off of and that's basically what allows her to move to LA. Yeah, and at that time she was living in St. Louis and teaching music. So she's making barely any money as a music teacher because, you know, yes. very little has changed in that regard. Yeah, sure. That's a big city relative to being at Mizzou. Yes. And so she happens to meet this producer guy yes. that you mentioned, Jay Oliver, and he's got the plug, I guess, for these jingles. <laughs> the jingle plug. <laughs> the commercial jingles. <laughs> it's honestly fascinating, though, because so many of Sheryl Crow's biggest hits, and we'll talk about how like the hits maybe belie some of the deeper and weirder things that she did in her discography, but a lot of her hits work as commercial jingles, too. I mean, every day is a winding road. Jesus, how many car commercials have we heard that in? Yeah. <laughs> All I want want to do is have some fun. Yeah. I mean, like, literally, you can picture a lot of these songs, and I don't mean this as a knock, I just mean this as the world-conquering pop intuition and skill that Cheryl Crow possesses. Mm -hmm. It's interesting part of her backstory that this is part of how she learned how to write songs, is by writing jingles. It feels like you can see that in some of her work. Totally. And that's also maybe part of the lack of respect, that I want to soak up the sun. It's funny, we have all of these hooks that sound so trivial, yes. and then the verses are like so right. not so so out there but definitely like whoa this is not what I would have expected from I want to soak up the sun a hundred percent obviously I want to soak up the sun is deeply ingrained in my mind just forever because I was alive in 2002 but right. I totally forgot that the first lyric is like I'm in my friend the communist van like, yeah exactly like, like okay I that was not what I pictured <laughs> he holds meetings in his RV <laughs> right I was like this is why this isn't a Michelle Branch song right <laughs> All right. So I guess one question I want to ask you is you were sort of saying that she isn't necessarily out here being like, I want to be a superstar. But obviously there is some part of her, at least at this juncture, because mm -hmm. she takes this money that she makes from the McDonald's jingle and moves to L.A. There's some obvious ambition here to become successful as a performer, right? I think so. I mean, I can't say concretely, but I have to imagine it's just kind of like the more she was playing and probably getting a taste of like making real money doing music. You know, she's like, 
this could be legit, but clearly I need to go to a coast right. to make a real swing of it. Right, which is also interesting in and of itself because L.A. itself ends up playing very prominently into her thematic concerns and vibe and persona. All right, so you mentioned this earlier. This is one of the funniest but also telling parts of Cheryl Crow's backstory is that she auditions for and gets the part of backing vocalist for Michael Jackson. Right. Peak Imperial era Michael Jackson on the Bad Tour and famously frequently is duetting with him on his smash hit from Bad, I Just Can't Stop Loving You. What do you make of that part of Cheryl's history? You were bringing it up as maybe a reason why she wasn't seen as a serious rocker. Mm -hmm. Do you think that there's parts of that that feel like informative to Cheryl? Where does Michael Jackson fit into the Cheryl Crow artistic sensibility? It's a good question. I mean, I think the kind of pop fluency that we have already been talking about is certainly, obviously, nobody's more pop fluent than Michael Jackson. Sure. The definition of the term. Right. But I think when I was sort of looking into how that came about, she said she was just in the studio recording backing vocals for some other thing. Right. She heard people talking about the auditions and she just went, even though she hadn't been invited. Right. So it was like, ooh, she crashed the audition and then she got it. Yes. But I guess it's just, to me, evidence of her superlative vocal ability, which we don't necessarily Mm. talk about so much, but Mm. just her skill as a singer and her flexibility. And I think it's in some ways not something that she even shows off so much in her songs. Sure. So many of them have a kind of talk singing verse. It's not necessarily vocal showcase, but she really can sing. Right. And she has a distinctive voice too. For sure. I love that kind of gravelly part of it. There's a really distinctive feeling and timbre to it that it is true that when you watch her sing, I just can't stop loving you. It's like an entirely different side of her voice than you're used to hearing on classic Cheryl Crow songs. And seeing her out there with the teased up hair and the little mini dress. It's dissonant thinking about this rocker chick hitting the road in her truck kind of vibe that Cheryl has in her own music. Here she is <laughs> just basically being a showgirl. It's an interesting totally. sort of dissonant <laughs> vibe when you watch her and Michael perform. But also, interestingly, which I didn't really realize, was a real introduction to her in the music industry because Michael's manager, as she famously memorializes in a couple of songs, essentially attempts to sexually assault her during this tour, offering her entrees into the music industry, but basically giving her, it seems like her first real taste of the rampant sexism and misogyny that defines this industry and that- The proverbial casting couch. Yes. And that has defined a lot of the ways that she's been perceived also. I thought that was very interesting as well. So she also has this kind of prolific background singing career. I was reading she does background vocals for Stevie Wonder, for Belinda Carlisle, for Jimmy Buffett. Mm -hmm. It's funny thinking just of Cheryl as the craftswoman. She really approached this from so many different interesting angles before she like landed on being Cheryl Crow. I also was thinking this, it was so funny because we did an episode recently on Demi Lovato. And the whole time we were talking about Demi Lovato, one of the themes of that conversation was child stardom should be illegal. Nobody should get famous at age 15 before they have any (laughs) idea who they are, like what they want in this world. And like no greater cautionary tale this side of Britney Spears than Demi Lovato in that sense. 
Sure. Sheryl Crow's kind of the opposite where it's like Sheryl Crow like has this whole life before she's famous and really doesn't get famous until she's an actual adult yeah. and really knows who she is and has studied this from a lot of different places and landed on the truth of who she is almost before anybody knows who she is. And I thought that that was an interesting aspect of this backstory of polyglot music business entrees. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we want to get into this yet, but I do think there's such a strong echo with Bonnie Raitt. Yes. We already talked about Bonnie Raitt, but I think more than even most of her women in rock peers of the 90s, I think Bonnie primed the pump for Cheryl with Nick of Time. For someone who's not literate in why Bonnie Raitt and Cheryl Crow are connected or what Bonnie Raitt was doing, how do you see that more granularly? So Bonnie had been making music for almost 20 years by the time she recorded Nick of Time. Right. Maybe not quite that long, but she was a very esoteric blues woman. Had a following for sure among the like hippies of the 70s, aka my mother. (laughs) She was not by any means not a known quantity. Yes. But she was sort of a purist. Right. Existing in the same zeitgeist as Emmylou Harris, but not quite as country. So she was more in her own world and I think less successful than Emmylou Harris during those years. Yes. Kind of comps there. But she's almost out of the music biz kind of right in the mid 80s she's in a sort of rough patch and then she talks to Don Was and they record Nick of Time in two weeks and it's just this total meeting of the minds and it becomes this surprise hit totally because of adult contemporary and that aforementioned mom demographic Because Nick of Time is rock, but pop, but blues informed, but a little bit country, you know, whatever. It's meeting in the middle of all of these different things in a way that I think is kind of similar to what Cheryl winds up doing. Yes. And also a little trend resistant, Mm. I would say. There's like a fake reggae song on Nick of Time that we can say (laughs) puts it firmly in the 80s, but... More or less, it's not super trendy sounding, with mm-hmm. the exception of all the people who would then try and do their own Nick totally. of Time. But Nick of Time, Luck of the Draw, those were Bonnie's megastar records. And she was like 40. Right. And so it was like she entered the national zeitgeist. Cheryl's not quite the same because she didn't have this whole recording career. But I do think... Bonnie paved the way for a Cheryl to exist. That's going to be my take. I agree. And also, they probably share a lot of fans. And as you mentioned, they're speaking to a similar demographic of people. Yeah. That's a really good point. And Cheryl herself points out that connection. And they've recorded together, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have, I think, multiple times. But the Threads album, one of the singles is with Mavis Staples and Bonnie. Right. And also, a big theme in Cheryl's career is her idols loving her because of the way that she (laughs) gestures at what they do. She's very embraced. I remember going to see the Rolling Stones with my parents when I was maybe a teenager and Sheryl Crow coming out and performing with them. Oh, wow. That's wild. (laughs) Yeah. Which I know is kind of her other big, big idol. For sure. So next interesting point in the Sheryl Crow story is that she ends up signing this deal and recording a shelved album with Sting's producer, Hugh Padnum. What do you know about this record? (laughs) You can listen to it on YouTube. It's really interesting. Yeah, you can. How would you describe what's happening here 
and why do you think this was not a good representation for Cheryl of Cheryl in her own mind or in the record label's mind? I mean, I think it's sort of the natural evolution of what we're talking about with her being Michael Jackson's backup singer, everybody's backup singer, very self-evidently beautiful blonde woman with a good voice. Yes. And so I'm imagining the temptation was to just package her in a pretty conventional pop way. And the record just sounds much more of that moment. Sure. It's much more specific to that early 90s aesthetic. I wrote down Wilson Phillips, question mark. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And nothing's wrong with Wilson Phillips. No, love Wilson Phillips. Oh my God, I would never speak ill of Wilson Phillips. But I don't know if Sheryl Crow is Wilson Phillips. Yeah, so it was lacking that rough around the edges quality that the best Sheryl Crow songs have. I mean, most Sheryl Crow songs have. (laughs) Yes. She's just not a polished gloss kind of lady. A hundred percent. But it does become part of this deal she has with AM. They mutually decide to scrap this record. Can you describe how she moves on from that scrapped album to what becomes her debut? Because obviously the backstory of this is both fascinating and incredibly informative to the Sheryl Crow legend. How does this, what becomes her debut record, Tuesday Music Club, come together exactly? Well, she starts dating this guy, Kevin Gilbert, somebody she meets in L.A., who knows? Yes. Whatever. Right. It was the early 90s. It was LA. They were wild and crazy. So many aspiring musicians just hanging. Sure. They didn't even have cell phones. God, it was magical. They couldn't even imagine what a cell phone was. Exactly. <laughs> well, they had those big <laughs> ones with the antenna, right? Right. Or the ones that were in the car, the car phone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. <laughs> so they're walking around with no cell phones. And Gilbert, I guess, a bunch of his friends have this Tuesday music jam session, I guess, would probably be the best way to describe it. And they just work on stuff together. And it kind of just sounds like it's an entree for her into like an outside of the music industry collaboration, right. not so entrenched in labels and pop and whatever. It's just some guys that are in LA writing songs. Right. Helping each other out, workshopping stuff. Yeah. And so it just fuels this whole album and the kind of rocky singer-songwritery, loose, but still pop-informed aesthetic all starts to coalesce. And also, I mean, I think it bears mentioning that one of the members of this club is Bill Bottrell, I think is how you say his name, or Bottrell, who is, at that point, a very successful producer who has worked with Michael Jackson. I mean, the Michael Jackson connection continues. He produced Black or White. He produced, like, a number of dangerous-era Michael Jackson songs. I think he started out, actually, as an engineer, but then moved into production. He ends up also being the primary producer of these initial Sheryl Crow songs. I think point being that in ways that we have clarified and not clarified over the last, whatever, 30 years, these songs are group efforts, question mark. I know this is going to come back into play very soon in our little conversation here. Right. (laughs) Essentially, these are group written songs or what? How do you understand that? That's how it seems, at least just that for the most part, they were the product of those conversations and those collaborations and whatever. I mean, all I want to do is interesting because it was already a poem by this guy, Wynn Cooper. Sure. But yeah, so they found this very obscure book of poetry in a used bookstore and then 
found this and it works perfectly. <laughs> right. And turned it into a song. But yeah, it seems like it was all collective. And my understanding is that it was easy for them to approach it collectively because they didn't think it was going to be that big of a deal. Sure. They were just having a fun time. They thought they were just going to record the album. It's chill, whatever. We're all down to help our good pal Cheryl. Sure. You know, our friend's girlfriend, <laughs> yeah. Cheryl. Right. She's cool. Yeah. We're going to like write some songs with her and oh, this is awesome. They're going to be on a CD. That's chill. You know, a hundred percent. I mean, it also all speaks to, I think Cheryl's got a bit of like a one of the guys vibe to her. It actually really makes sense in thinking about Cheryl that she'd be comfortable hanging out with a group of dudes. Like yeah. This. And I feel like that becomes part of her persona. There's aspects of her persona that are obviously feminine and very decidedly so, but then there's aspects of her persona that feel very much like the girl that hangs out with the dudes. And that's such a 90s thing too, right? Yeah, 100%. Oh, he's just like the cool girl, you know? And I don't think that's her trying to be that really so much. I think that's more just, it's so easy to slot her in that category. 100%. So you brought up All I Want to Do. This is not the first single from this record, but it is the single that breaks Cheryl out. And we will talk about the other songs from this record, but I think maybe this is a moment for us to talk about this song. This song becomes an absolute smash hit. It hits number two on the Hot 100 and turns Cheryl into like an unexpected superstar. This ain't no disco. It ain't no country club either. This is L.A. You talked about it a little bit as being inspired by this poem. How would you describe All I Want to Do? What does this song sound like? What is it about, if it's about anything at all? And how does it present Cheryl to the world? I mean, it's funny because it feels, like I said before, like so Gen X, because it's all about being sort of disaffected. You're drinking during the day. Right. You're watching plebes wash their cars. <laughs> and you're like, why would they even do that? Washing your car is a waste of time. Right. But then it has this chorus, which is a line from the poem. It's like the opening line of the poem is like, all I want to do is have a little fun before I die. Right. And they turn it into this incredible hook. And who among us isn't like, all I want to do is have a little fun before I die. Relatable as you can get, basically. And I was reading, the dude was like, he could not have been more obscure. The guy who wrote the poem. When? I think he printed a hundred copies of his little poetry book. Right. And somehow they got their hands on one. Yeah. It's so interesting because we'll talk maybe a bit about how this song becomes like a red herring for Sheryl Crow in the sense that maybe she tries to outrun this song for the rest of her career because it almost presents her as like a carefree, almost silly character in a way that I think maybe isn't really the way that like a lot of her other music tries to go at it. 
But again, this song is almost stream of consciousness. I don't know, like there's like a feeling of this person sitting there making observations. I love the lyric. I like a good beer buzz early in the morning. Talk about the girl that hangs with the guys kind of vibe. But I think one of the things that interests me the most about this song is the way that it's almost a disco record. It's almost a strutting four on the floor disco song. Yeah. You know, there was much hay made of Casey Musgraves, who's obviously a spiritual descendant of Sheryl Crow's in numerous ways, but of her song from Golden Hour High Horse, which was kind of halfway cutting the distance between a country song and a disco song. But to me, this is like the air text for that. This song is halfway between like a roots rock song and a disco anthem. Well, and she starts it by saying, this ain't no disco. This ain't no disco. (laughs) This ain't no country club neither. Yeah. (laughs) And also the role that LA is obviously playing in this. The other thing that I was thinking about with All I Want to Do is LA never sounds more appealing as someone who just left there after living there for three years and very happily vacated. She makes LA sound freewheeling and fun in a way that maybe it isn't anymore or wasn't ever. There's something about this song that makes LA sound more appealing than ever. For sure. A kind of beatnik yes. side of LA. Coastal and fun, but also a little bit out there and kind of esoteric. I mean, like you're talking about with the stream of consciousness thing. If you've ever tried to do All I Want to Do at Karaoke, as I can say that I have, sure, it is not easy. <laughs> no, I bet. To follow along with those verses at the exact rhythm that she does is very difficult because it's so conversational in the way that she's singing it. Or almost rapped, I wrote. It's almost borderline rapped. Yeah. I mean, it's relying on a rhythmic interpretation of those lines a lot more than it is a sung interpretation of them. And I totally agree as far as it being so groovy and almost disco. That, too, puts her in a different category from the grunge. For sure. It's kind of a dividing line how dancey it is and makes the chorus sound that much more like trivial pop. Yes. If that groove is underneath and you're like, all I want to do is have a little fun before I die, you know? Yeah. (laughs) It's just interesting because I think there's one interpretation where the song feels kind of frivolous and silly, but it's because of that edge that she brings to it that makes it really not that way. It's almost like is she being straightforward about this or is she being a little bit ironic almost about the whole thing almost nihilistic in a sense totally (laughs) so this song as i said is a smash hit talk to me about the rest of this record again this becomes an absolute blockbuster hit obviously we should talk about the other huge song from this record which is a entirely different sounding song called strong enough which is the fifth single that hits number five. What is this song in relation to a song like All I Want to Do? How would you describe this and how does this present Cheryl in an absolutely different light? I mean, it's so intimate and personal, different from All I Want to Do in every possible way. (laughs) Yes. You know, it's confessional and it feels more in line with a kind of Liz Farian vibe because it's confrontational in a sense. Yes. She's like, are you going to show up? Exactly. Or are you capable of measuring up? Exactly. Because you can't change the way I am. Are you strong enough to be my man? Ride me. I promise. I mean, it's almost like her, I can't make you love me. Oh, very that. Yeah. I mean, it's so intense emotionally. Yeah. Very wistful. Definitely. Moody, which is something that I think is a definitional part of 
Cheryl's artistry and beautifully constructed and written. All I want to do has this jangly, loose feeling to it. And this is really imbued with the studied songcraft that obviously she's bringing to this. This song is beautifully written and it's so earnest in a way that all I want to do is so not. Mm-hmm. All I want to do is almost like an eye roll. And this is so right. straightforward <laughs> and earnest. And the one two punch of these lays out a lot about Cheryl Crow in a way that I think is part of the reason this record becomes the blockbuster that it is, is you get a lot of texture and layers between these two songs as not the first two singles from this record but the two that kind of define it yeah what else feels important to talk about in terms of this record what other songs here feel worth mentioning to you or show us something about Cheryl I mean I think for sure Leaving Las Vegas that was the single before All I Want to Do and it was a modest hit yes it was not like everyone knows who Cheryl Crow is now but it was definitely like hmm who is this lady (laughs) yes and more of the talk singy that feels very signature of her exactly feels even even more like beat Nikki. I mean, the title, Leaving Las Vegas, feels so like. Absolutely. We were talking about this sort of Lana connection and the Americana tropes. This is where I was getting some of that. Totally. Blackjack and Vegas and leaving home and going (laughs) west, leaving behind the American dream in the form of the glitz and glam of Las Vegas. She sort of revels in the tropes, like a lot of great rock music does. She utilizes those tropes very openly and freely in a lot of this music. Yeah, she's not afraid of being redundant. No, and I think it's also what helps connect her to the music she's homaging, which is obviously very important to her. Oh, totally. You can go through and it really is this almost ping pong between super earnest not always ballads but just really sincere songs and then like the Nana song which is this weird political jumbled thing but again so Gen X That song specifically feels so 90s. I was like, this is Cheryl doing Anthony Kiedis. Yeah, exactly. Or like Beck Loser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like the hippie overtones of everyone should come together. There's that ethos of the 60s and 70s that feels very integral to Cheryl's persona, I think. And also the Nana song, interesting because it's one of the two songs on here, again, that I mentioned earlier that are skewering sexual misconduct related to what she experienced with Frank DeLeo. There's another song that's What I Can Do For You that's essentially embodying his persona perspective, like speaking lines from his mouth, like, I have so much to offer you if you would just be nice. There's a certain POV of these songs in terms of calling out the sexism that feel ultra 2023. Yeah. There's like a boldness in terms of calling this out that I actually found kind of jaw-dropping for 1993. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like whenever you come across stuff like that, people stating plainly some kind of thing that we're still reckoning with. Yes. And I think the best way I can understand it is that at the time, it was so just like written off. Yes. You know, it was like, oh yeah, ladies talking about lady stuff, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) You know, right? or just taken for granted in a way of like, well, this is the way things are, so 
sucks, <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, oh my God, 100%. I, I can't remember somebody saying this to her, but I think she filed a complaint with her manager or something about this original incident. And he said, don't do anything about this. A million people would die to be in your position right now. Yeah. Which is a classic. Totally. And like, even as critics or listeners are listening to this album, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cry me a river. <laughs> you know? Yeah, 100%. Not everyone. I think probably it was very important to a lot of people. But I think that's just why we don't have as much of that facet of her reputation because it just isn't remembered because it wasn't paid attention to at that time. Exactly. Which is why sometimes I think she's kind of fought against a lot of the singles that have defined her because I think a lot of people peg her as soak up the sun and all I want to do and kind of miss this aspect of the whole thing. The only other song that I felt like was worth talking about was Run Baby Run, which is this almost like blues rock power ballad of some sort that opens the record. And weirdly, I was reading is inspired by the election of Bill Clinton. (laughs) (laughs) which is very, very funny. (laughs) A lot of themes of getting in your car and getting the fuck out. (laughs) When I think of Cheryl Crow, for some reason, I think of her jumping in a truck and leaving. That's like the persona she cuts on a lot of these records. It's a very classic American trope of she can't be held down. She's hitting the highway. Thelma and Louise out here. Yes, Thelma and Louise. Very (laughs) Thelma and Louise. Very that. Yeah, yeah. It's perfect road trip music. Yes. The entire Cheryl catalog is great for that. The only time I've been in a car where we've gotten a speeding ticket, my friend was driving. I promise (laughs) I wasn't driving. Sure. But we had just turned on if it makes you happy. And we were actually driving back from Memphis to Nashville and trying to get back and trying to pass a semi. And she was accidentally going like 85 and like we got pulled over. Oh my God. But anyway, we were singing if it makes you happy. So (laughs) yes. And that will just do it to you like a hundred million percent. It will. How good is this episode? It's good, right? Well, great news, because if you like what you're hearing here, you're going to love what we're doing over on our Patreon channel, Pop Pantheon All Access, where for five bucks a month, you'll get bonus episodes of our show weekly. You heard that right. Every single week, we're dropping more of the same searing in-depth combos you love about all your most anticipated new albums by stars like Ariana Grande, Dua Lipa, and Tate McRae, just to name a few, parsing apart all the newest pop singles in our famous new music speed rounds, and of course, diving deep on your favorite classic albums like Madonna's Hard Candy, Christina Aguilera's Stripped, and so much more, all with your favorite pop pantheon guests. All this, plus you'll get access to our Discord channel, input on future episodes of the show, and so much more. So sign up at the icon tier now at patreon.com slash pop pantheon, or simply by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. You won't regret it. This record is a monumental success. It is unexpected for all involved. It sells 7 million copies in the United States and goes on to win the Record of the Year Grammy and Best New Artist and Best Pop Female Performance. So this is an absolute sensation. I'm curious if you could position this record and Cheryl and this breakout moment amongst popular music more broadly in this moment. Where is Cheryl in the ether here? Is this just like a weird fluke thing for people? In terms of what's happening more broadly in popular music in 1993 or 1994, how do you see Cheryl fitting in there? I mean, I would say I think her music was successful at the Grammys for a lot of the reasons that we're talking about because the Grammys always favor people who sort of have a real reverence for their forebearers and an obvious technical musical ability. 
ability, yes. acoustic sounds and all of this kind of stuff. Sure. But in this moment, we're talking about hip hop taking over pop music in a big way. We're talking about grunge maybe about to fall off, you yes. know, whatever. Grunge to post-grunge transition. Sure. And there is this bubbling, simmering world of women rockers. I mean, Alanis Morissette, yes. Lisa Loeb, Katie Lang, right. Liz Fair, as we're talking about women with guitars, it's suddenly like a little bit of a moment. Again, a moment I think that is presaged heavily by Bonnie Raitt and Nick of Time. But almost this is like presaging Lilith Fair. Yes, exactly. It's a little bit before Lilith Fair, I believe. Yes. But yeah, so she's kind of a nostalgic fave for Grammy voters, but also tapping into this women at the front of pop music feeling that we're going to lean more and more and more into as the 90s go on. Right. I think thinking of her as right before Atlantis is very interesting, actually. I mean, they're very different in a lot of ways, but I think there's a certain ethos that you can connect around what they're representing in the space. And, you know, I think the thing that kind of connects her to the 90s in a way that her music sometimes doesn't is that sardonic edge of All I Want to Do, which, again, it's not always present in all of her songs, but I think it's interesting that it's there in her establishing hit. That is something that connects sort of like Beck yeah, yeah, yeah. and other attitudes of 90s rock culture. Definitely. Less so than her allusions to the sounds or vibes of maybe music of the 60s or 70s. And again, I think there's a way in which she's trying to outrun the vibe she puts forth on All I Want to Do throughout a lot of her catalog. But it's interesting that that's the song that is the one that breaks through because that in its attitude feels more 1993 than some of Cheryl's other music to me. Definitely. I mean, I'm looking at who else was nominated for Best New Artist in her year, and it's Ace of Bass, Counting Crows, Crash Test Dummies, sure. and Green Day. Yes. <laughs> You know, what's so interesting also that you're saying is that she talks about this too in an interview I was just reading. They didn't know how to market or classify her. So they tried to make her break on alternative radio. And she right. was like, am I alternative? <laughs> so there is a way in which even at the moment this is happening, it's clear to people that this doesn't quite fit in. I almost like this is, again, an insane comp. So just roll with me here. It's almost like the Nora Jones of 1993 in the sense of Nora Jones wasn't exactly like speaking to any much broader trends in pop music when she dominated music for that year in 2001. Yeah. She was kind of counter-programming and a little bit like Grammy's bait, not to undermine the fact that she's wickedly talented. Yeah. Like that record was great, but I wonder if there's a specific connection between that type of artist. Yeah. No, I think it's not totally out there to think of them <laughs> the same way. <laughs> but the story around this record is not all sunshine because basically infamously Cheryl goes on The Late Show with David Letterman and performs Leaving Las Vegas and he guess he feeds her some sort of question and she sort of offhandedly implies that she did most of the songwriting herself which leads to a massive explosion with the Tuesday Night Music Club that essentially seems to have been a part of writing this record. Can you describe what happens here and how this affects the narrative of Cheryl Crow more broadly as we're sort of coming out of this period? Yeah, I mean, basically, I think she like implied that the song was based on her personal experience. And two of the other members had much more heavily wrote that. One of them had actually published a book that was called Leaving Las Vegas, I guess. Right. But it's kind of exactly what you would expect. Like suddenly tons of money is on the table here. Right. And they're all like, I didn't get enough credit. Right. Her ex-boyfriend, maybe more vocally even than anybody else on the album. Yes. They're all just like, this isn't fair. She didn't write most of these songs. We did 
did it. Various ones of us were responsible for different songs. And it's like, if you look at the credits, they're all credited. I mean, she has a credit, I think, on every single song, which maybe is part of their beef. Yes. But yeah, it's just tricky because it's exactly what you would think would happen because when money is involved, nothing's ever simple. Right. (laughs) Especially when you have these songs. Some of them have seven people credited. Right. And it's like, who gets what percentage? Blah, 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 blah. This is all just huge mess. But they're very vocal and public with undermining her credits on the album and saying she didn't do as much as she says. Right. It's kind of like we're left scrambling to be like, whoa, what did she actually do? Blah, blah, blah. And I don't know that there's a way that we ever really know who is fully responsible for what. Yes. But... It definitely has the effect of deflating her balloon a little bit. I mean, she's still obviously enormously successful, but having a bunch of men being like, this woman stole our work, you know? It's like she got milkshake ducked, you know? Right, 100%. And I was thinking a lot about how you were mentioning kind of the raucist environs of this moment. Yeah. And Cheryl Crow's ongoing quest to receive the serious consideration that she deserves and how much of a blow this would be, especially in that context as a woman attempting to exist as a rocker in this particular moment where like sort of the values of rockism are maybe in their peak in the post-grunge environment. So it's interesting to think about how big of a credibility blow this is in an era where sitting down plucking out your own songs and that's such an important part of this whole thing. Exactly. And to be a woman and to be a woman who is already pushing the buttons of the sort of cooler rock establishment of that moment by making music that is optimistic or has a bit of a sunnier throwbacky vibe to it that isn't Kurt Cobain talking about what Kurt Cobain was talking about whatever you know you could see how that would be a big problem for her in terms of how she's trying to like establish herself in the ether at this moment and then of course there's the sad coda which I think has been denied by the family but John O'Brien the guy from the Tuesday Night Music Club who wrote the book of the same name committed suicide literally weeks after the David Letterman appearance. So that added another layer of tragedy to this whole story as well. Yeah. And that's obviously like horrifying. Horrifying. I don't know. What do you even do with that? I mean, obviously we're looking at this decades later. My impulse is to give Cheryl the benefit of the doubt. Right. Just because of the uphill battle that she was facing in that moment. Sure. And as faced for a long time, but also we have no idea, <laughs> you know? No, we and have no the idea. complications of it, I don't think anybody's all right or all wrong or who knows. A hundred percent. I'm sure there's like a million truths to the story. And it seems like from what I was reading, even various other members of the group were talking about differently in terms of how she was contributing to it, whether you were talking to Bill or to whomever. It seems like everybody had different POVs and even changing POVs on this as time unfolded. But I do think this narrative is obviously incredibly instructive in setting up her second record, which is her self-titled album that comes out in 1996, which she essentially self-produces and writes either by herself or with one other songwriter throughout the entire process, obviously as an answer. I mean, you know, it reminds me a little bit of another clear Cheryl acolyte, Taylor Swift on Speak Now, who dealt with a lot of accusations of not having written her own music on her early work and then sort of said, here's an album where I'm going to make sure that you know that I wrote every song and produced everything and making sure that that's obvious. That seems to be the narrative that surrounds 1996 is Sheryl Crow. Many people consider this to be Sheryl Crow's crowning achievement as an artist. How does the music evolve and change here? And who is Sheryl Crow here? I would say she's stretching out in different ways and sort of experimenting, which is so funny to say about an album that includes Every Day as a Winding Road. <laughs> you know, we're so familiar with it now. It feels so down the middle. Yeah. But her taking ownership 
performatively and in actuality of her music and her sound, she was just like, I'm going to do what I want. And it spans a lot of different sounds like Tuesday Night Music Club. Yes. But I think goes to darker places and is a little more expansive and ambitious even than her first album. Yes. And eccentric. I mean, I was thinking a little bit about the opening track, Maybe Angels, which is essentially exploring the idea of extraterrestrial <laughs> life. Yeah. I swear. And again, that almost signature employment of the Americana cliche. My sister, she says she knows Elvis. She knows Jesus, John Lennon, and Cobain personally. (laughs) That was, I think, part of where the Lana Connect was coming in for me a little bit. And driving down I-95 to Pensacola. But at the same time, kind of eccentric and singular and strange and personal. One of my favorite songs is Home, which is the third track on the record, which is kind of about the stresses of a failed marriage or something like Mm -hmm. that. One thing we haven't talked a lot about, which seems to be like a motif in Cheryl's music up to this point, is embodying characters. Yeah. Her music is less autobiographical and more sort of told through other people's stories. And I felt like that's something that seems to be pertinent on a song like Home. There seems to be like a way in which she creates distance somehow between herself and the character she is in her records by doing that. Have you noticed that or has that been apparent to you? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And she did deal with a fair amount of speculation about who her songs were about, you know, because she was in a fair number of public relationships. Right. And so I think that's sort of just her style. Again, it's in this nostalgic mode of, right. I'm not being confessional here necessarily. I'm like a storyteller. I'm going to perform this the way that I think it needs to be performed. And that doesn't mean drawing from my own life necessarily. It might. Right. It puts her in the tradition of almost like the blues. I was thinking about A Change Would Do You Good, which is one of the big hits on this record. Almost is like a Mavis Staple song or something like that. Change, change. A lot of this record was recorded in New Orleans and you can hear that influence of that particular milieu. And it's interesting also because no matter what though, they're so centered around these hooks. Like a change would you good, incredible hook. You obviously brought up Every Day is a Winding Road. I mean, another song that, again, talking about her Stones references, very sympathy for the devil. Another almost carefree anthem in the lineage of All I Want to Do. But then, as you mentioned, another trope that she seems to return to is the hooky, sunshiny chorus, optimistic, (laughs) but that the verses are sort of like really weird. Like, (laughs) I've been swimming in a sea of anarchy.
The darkness is almost deceptively shoehorned in in ways that you almost don't expect, but it makes the song sound, pulls them out of car commercial and into something more idiosyncratic and eccentric. Yeah, it's funny how she always returns to that back and forth. It's smart strategy because <laughs> those hooks will take you really far. Yeah, and no hook greater, I think, than If It Makes You Happy, which is the lead single number 10 song, which maybe is more autobiographical in the sense that I think she's singing this song to herself. A big thing she talked a lot about was how exhausted she was by the success of the first record and the touring and all the attention it brought to her. And this whole song is essentially, it's like this kind of moody, almost plotting song that essentially is asking herself, if this is everything you wanted, why are you so depressed? Yeah. It's a really cathartic listen, I think. Oh my gosh. Maybe the most cathartic. (laughs) Yes. Also another great karaoke classic. Yes. But we definitely have to point to the introduction of Jeff Trott here on this record. Yes. He co-wrote If It Makes You Happy, also A Change Would Do You Good, Every Day is a Winding Road. Yes. And his production style, as it seeps in here, obviously, this was her record. She owned it. No man could hold her down. Yes. But Jeff Trott, it's so funny. I came across this country woman. You know, I write a lot about country and this woman, Claire Dunn, released an EP. And I was like, oh, this EP is really good. It definitely like has Cheryl vibes, but like it's killer. This was probably like, a couple years ago. Jeff Trot produced it. Oh, wow. Interesting. I was like, okay, there he is. Has Jeff Trot gone on to have a successful career outside of her, generally speaking? I think so. I am not sure of his exact credits, but he just so perfectly nailed that sound. Yes. That anyone who wants to tap that, they can just call him up. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. Whatever the two of them are coming up with here and the way that this record sounds like and Toto to me is, I don't know whether this is just ingrained in me because this is what I think this is or whether it really is this but it's like the sound of America (laughs) there's like a spirit to it that I have trouble articulating in a way it's not hip it's not necessarily like innovative but it is very much the sound of American music there's something about this that just feels celebratory of our musical heritage or something like that yeah I mean it's very like grounded yes it's rootsy in a way that isn't overly reverent yeah but just kind of like here we love guitars we love blues. <laughs> like make our little pop songs and they're fun. <laughs> yes. What's her persona like to you? Is it different than it is on Tuesday night? How would you describe who Cheryl Crow is in these songs if it's different or has evolved in any meaningful ways? I mean, I think if it makes you happy being maybe the signature track of this album. Yes. I mean, at least in retrospect, I don't know necessarily at the moment. But that's so much more of an angsty affect, you know, than anything that she did on Tuesday Night Music Club. Yes. Raw. Exactly. I mean, Strong Enough got there a little bit, but I think this is more, I don't want to be reductive, but this is framing her even more explicitly in like a girl power pre-Lilith Fair whatever, anticipating that kind of vibe. So I think this shifted her away from pop star and more towards I'm a woman who owns my career and I'm a little bit angry about the way that the world is. (laughs) Right. Even the way she like appears on the cover with her hair in her face and like... So moody. Yes. And again, the sort of political activism bent on the song Love is a Good Thing where she infamously talks about how kids kill each other with guns they buy at Walmart and then Walmart 
Walmart refused to sell the record. Right. Watch your sister, watch your brother, watch your children while they kill each other with a gun they bought at Walmart discount stores. More things change. God, <laughs> why is that still relevant? Similarly to the way the sort of call-outs of sexual assault on the first record felt weirdly present day, so did this. Yeah, no, and she's talking about Bosnian war and all kinds of stuff. She's definitely making political statements here. She's like, please, I am versed in current events. Don't just write me off as a person who doesn't care about things. Right, and also singing about them in the way that feels... There's a certain ethos of 60s and 70s political activism that she just embodies. It's earnest. It's so weird. That like line between her sort of irony and earnestness is a very interesting part of her artistry. So, okay, this record is massively well-received super critically adored and goes three times platinum in the US. She has big hits and If It Makes You Happy, It Changed Her Do You Good, Every Day's a Winding Road, obviously. Before we get into talking about her next record, I just want to ask you a little bit about Cheryl the Celebrity. You talked a little bit about this. She's obviously like an LA fixture at this point. She's very famous. Mm -hmm. Who is Cheryl like as a celebrity following these two records? You said she dates a lot of famous people. Like how do people view her in that aspect? That's a good question. I have more memories of her celebrity from like the aughts. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That was when I more knew her. But I think it's like she was so beautiful in a traditional American girl next door kind of way that I think that just sort of allowed her to become extremely famous, whether or not people were even aware of her songs. It sort of compartmentalized her celebrity a little bit right. from the music she was actually making. She dated like Owen Wilson and stuff. <laughs> That sounds right. Yes. I mean, the reason I wanted to ask that is because the lead single from her next record, 1998's The Globe Sessions, is my favorite mistake, potentially my favorite Sheryl Crow song. Yeah. But it's, I think, about an affair. Speaking about also the way that Cheryl is embraced in more ways than one by her idols is about an affair she had with Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. her liaisons over the years and when I spoke with Cheryl I asked her about this kind of off the record and she was like you know just is what it is and I'm happy that I'm single <laughs> she's like so matter of fact about it just kind of in the way of god we all fuck up when we're 20 you know I mean she wasn't 20 but she was younger than she is now and I don't know I think it's probably just if you idolize Eric Clapton yes. and you meet Eric Clapton what are you gonna do <laughs> you're gonna sleep with Eric Clapton and then maybe get cheated on by Eric Clapton it sounds like question mark yeah I almost feel like this song is like her you're so vain yeah <laughs> I don't want to reduce this song to just being like a tawdry recount of her affair with Eric Clapton but it's a really interesting thematic concern I think the Globe Sessions overall feels like a more personal first person sort of album that her previous work mm -hmm. we talked about like the way that she embodies characters in a lot of her songs this song and a lot of this album feels almost like a breakup album yeah. these songs feel kind of like they're weeding through the wreckage of a relationship I really enjoy the straightforward narrative songwriting like I love just the lyrics in my favorite mistake like I made up the bed we sleep in I looked at the clock when you're creeping the tone of your voice is a warning that you don't care for me anymore there's a sort of matter of factness to the lyrical conceits here that make it feel more first person direct relatable 
accessible. Less of the sort of ironic, detached, yes. who knows what's happening here kind of thing. A hundred percent. Yes. Another favorite part of this record for me is the song There Goes the Neighborhood, which I was reading she recorded this record in the Meatpacking District. And it was all about how <laughs> drag queens and freaks are taking over the area. And it's so funny just thinking about the Meatpacking District in 2023 as literally the place where like catches or whatever. <laughs> and, like thinking about Cheryl being there at the beginning of the gentrification of the meatpacking district. I mean, that's like Samantha era Sex in the City meatpacking district. <laughs> the way that I was making that connection, you're right inside of my cerebellum right now. What do you make of the Globe Sessions as a record and how does it stack up to you to the first two? I mean, I think it's just another clear entry in her mission to have credibility, right. to get the respect that all of her rock idols got, mm. to sort of place herself in that vein. I mean, she covers Bob Dylan. It's a little more of a self-serious yes. proposition even than the previous two. Yes. And I think it's my favorite mistake aside. She's getting away from those hooky, True. catchy pop tunes a little bit. Yes. It's kind of her flexing her creative control. Yes. She's kind of just like, I can do what I want. I have earned the right to create this, but also still trying to prove herself. Yeah. Well, I wonder about the sort of definitional narrative of her need to prove herself. Yeah. We can talk about that in like a more macro sense here a little bit about just why is Cheryl Crow constantly having to push against this feeling? What is the attitude in the broader body politic of pop criticism and consumerism that makes it such that she Cheryl Crow through a lot of these peak records feels as though she's in this constant struggle to say, no, I'm worth respecting. What do you make of that? I mean, I think honestly, it's just still the sexism of the era. And I don't want to write it off as that's just the way things were. But it's like when you read the coverage of that time, I mean, I've done more reading about even Shania and the chicks and those kinds of people like from this late 90s era even. Yes. And it's just astonishing yes. the language that was used to talk about them. I, it's crazy to me. I was alive. I, know. Know? I was a sentient being yes. and I'm like around in this world where people are talking about women in these wildly dismissive and patronizing tones. Yes. So even as people are like, yeah, this music is good. Yeah, they're successful. They're still finding ways to like undercut all of that success by just being like, it's not that serious. You know, it's a woman. It's true. One of the sadder undertones of this listen through for me was sensing that subterranean struggle that's going on here that gets set into motion in some ways by the controversy surrounding Tuesday night music but also a broader thing that all women in the space are in constant struggle with and continue to be in constant struggle with to some degree obviously we've made right. some strides but it's just fascinating to think of a woman this evidently skilled talented accomplished just the constant struggle for that is so interesting and the thought that even if she does what she does well in many ways which is to write rock songs with big fucking hooks that that's somehow something that she's got to make sure that she tempers is just an interesting reality check 
Yeah. And I do think I hadn't really thought about this before we started talking, but I feel like she's probably getting slotted in with Hootie a lot. Yes. Like situationally, nobody was more of a punchline, I think, than Hootie and the Blowfish in some circles, you know, and we all have looked back and seen the error in our ways. Yes. (laughs) Yes. But yeah, there's the sexism and there's also the just this is not that serious. This is not serious rock music. Right. This is rehashed old rock music, kind of watered down versions of stuff that there's better versions of or something. Yes. Not recognizing her ability to translate those sounds for a new audience and to reimagine them in her own image. Right. And also through her own idiosyncrasies and eccentricism, which I think is one of the most important parts of this. So maybe before we get into the last record I really want to touch on in depth with you today, who are Cheryl's fans? I mean, I talked a lot about my mom. I think we remember Cheryl a lot as like mom-friendly music. Yeah. In 1998, 1999, we're you know, a good seven, eight years into Sheryl Crow being very successful, having lots of hit songs. In that period, who are Sheryl Crow's fans if you had to just pontificate? I mean, I know you don't have like demographic data in front of you, <laughs> but if you just had to guess at it, who's listening to this? I think she was able to reach, I believe, an adult contemporary top 40 market, right. which most of the people who were described as alt-rock were not. Yes. She wasn't just on alt-rock radio. She crossed over to adult contemporary, then you're on in the dentist office. Right. You know, <laughs> like then you're everywhere. And so I think the Cheryl Crow devotee, that's an interesting person. I would imagine that she was reaching a kind of Bonnie Raitt-ish audience, but I also think Bonnie Raitt was taken much more seriously, in part because she was older and had been around right. a lot longer. And was directly connected to that era that we venerate as the real era of rock music. Yeah, she had the bona fides in the resume and she was kind of elder statesman e a little bit. I think she got more respect. But I imagine that Cheryl was reaching some of that demographic. I think she was like in between that and Lilith Fair right. and just general pop audience. She was where those Venn diagrams intersect. Yes, you know? 100%. Um, I kept thinking VH1. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that that's almost instructive in thinking about Come On, Come On, her 2002 record, which in a way I actually actually feel like even though it's definitely not my favorite Cheryl Crow album is kind of relieving because I think in a sense it's the moment where she maybe does shake off some of those expectations of credibility and just kind of goes for the pop intuition. Obviously the lead single is one of her most memorable, probably one that's most recognizable to people that didn't come up with Cheryl Crow, which is Soak Up the Sun. We mentioned it a little bit at the beginning. It is just a big, ebullient Beach Boys-esque almost pop rock song, essentially. It's also a song about what you want to do. <laughs> you know, she's cribbing from herself a little bit here. But who could be mad? We all have many wants. And some of them are to soak up the sun.
there's an embrace of the cheese on a song like Soak Up the Sun that I appreciate and feel relaxed about when I hear this song. Yes. This is maybe her most unabashedly cheesy song because I think even as it alludes to All I Want to Do, All I Want to Do Again was so defined by that sardonic edge. Whereas this song, I guess, has that somewhere in the mix, but she spoke very openly about the fact that part of the impetus behind this song and maybe behind this record in general was we're post 9-11. I want to uplift the audience here. And Cheryl Crow's <laughs> answer to 9-11. Yeah. <laughs> it's a better answer than were you there when the world stopped turning or whatever the fuck it was. Yes, that's for sure. <laughs> but yeah, it's like drum machines and big synthesizers and very unabashedly a cheesy ass song of uplift. I mean, I, as we mentioned, there's some classic Cheryl weird non sequiturs in the verses about the communists and the RV van and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, what you walk away from with this song is sheer uplift. Happy. Also, Liz Fair. As a guest vocalist, like what? <laughs> Liz Fair presaging her own Sunny Rock reinvention a few years later. Exactly. Which I just heard at Sonic last week. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so random. Liz Fair at Sonic. It's happening. Why can't I breathe whenever I think about you? Exactly. Yes. But yeah, Soak of the Sun. She's like, I don't give a fuck. I'm going to write a hit. <laughs> yes, this is her I don't give a fuck song. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about this record? I mean, this was a very different album than the Globe Sessions, let's say. We're very AC country rock. To me, as an overall listen, and I know you said this was like the entry point for you to Sheryl Crow in terms of buying her records. This is where I saw that glimmer of she could have been like a Nashville Song Factory songwriter. Yeah. These are just very well-made pop rock songs, but not exactly eccentric or idiosyncratic in the way that some of the best songs from the previous three records were for me. It's a little bit glossy to the point of distance. Yeah, it's more down the middle for sure. Yeah. I think it's interesting looking at these guest vocal. I mean, having Natalie Maines and I Lou Harris, and she's nodding at her country roots here yes. right before we even get the full Cheryl country thing. And the appearance of John Shanks, who goes on to be an incredibly prolific producer for Ashley Simpson and Kelly Clarkson and all of the big pop rock girls of this decade, produces the second single, Steve McQueen. Like Steve McQueen. There's definitely a sense of not trying to hide the pop aspirations. What John Shanks had been known for up to this point was producing like Michelle Branch and stuff like that. So like she was embracing her down the middleness, I guess. Yeah, I love Steve McQueen. I mean, I had this album, first Sheryl Crow album that I owned probably because of Soak Up the Sun. I don't know, whatever. This was my top 40 moment. And I would basically just listen to the first three songs. Yes. Repeat. They're all great. I was like 11. You know, I would just go Steve McQueen, Soak Up the Sun, you're an original, back to one. Yes. Yeah. You're an original big ass hook. What a great hook. It's so good. And also kind of like a takedown of toxic male rocker masculinity. Yeah. It was a very enjoyable record, but a little glossy for me. I like my show Crow to have a little bit grit to it, a little <laughs> bit more texture. I don't think we're ever going to get that Cheryl Crow again, sadly. No. The last two things I really want to get into here, obviously Cheryl has kind of two defining hits here also in this period. One is a very famous duet picture with Kid Rock, hey. famous MAGA supporter Kid Rock. <laughs> but a great song. Another karaoke classic. Beautiful song. It's really good, honestly. Far be it for me to like give it up to Kid Rock, but this song actually. <laughs> does bang. <laughs> 
You do not by any means have to hand it to him. No. But you also do. But I also do. <laughs> Just one moment. I couldn't resist. I found your picture today. I swear I'll change my ways. I just called to say I want you to come back home. This is one of those songs I remember just hearing nonstop on the radio and kind of glossing over because at this point in my life, I was more like, I'm into Nelly or whatever. Right. But it really is just a classic, great song. It, you know, a lot of the best Sheryl Crow songs to me sound like they've existed for all of eternity. And this is one of those for me. There's this weird, as you mentioned, timelessness to them. They feel like they're part of the American songbook. You were saying like Every Day is a Winding Road or All I Want to Do. These songs feel like they could have existed in time and memoriam. You know what I mean? Like, and I think Picture kind of slots in with that as well. Yeah. I mean, a very acoustic country cover of Picture, I'm sure such a thing exists, yes. but it would be very good. The Kid Rock Sheryl Crow version has that. 2003 gloss on it. You know, it sounds of its moment. A hundred percent. But yeah, the song itself stands alone, I would say. Yes. And then she has another big hit from her greatest hits package that comes out, which is a cover of Cat Stevens' The First Cut is the Deepest, which is also quite beautiful, I thought. I think I have PTSD from when that was on the radio constantly. <laughs> it's too easy to like parody that song. First cut is a deepest. Yeah, and also her doing the cat. I, I know. <laughs> it's too much. A very obvious one for her, maybe. Maybe an obvious one. I just love her singing voice. I just really enjoy listening to Cheryl Crow sing, I have to say. I mean, me too. I just, I mean, you were there. I was there. We were all there. We heard it on the radio nonstop. It was, yes, it was a it lot. Was, it was there. <laughs> okay, so important context as we kind of like wind down. Obviously, Cheryl Crow has had a very prolific career following all of this. But I just think it's also important to contextualize. By the time we're in the mid-2000s, Cheryl Crow is a four-year-old woman mm -hmm. swimming in a sea of the teen pop boom, essentially. She's living in the world of Britney and Christina. And I remember being there, as we mentioned, and feeling very much like Cheryl Crow was part of a previous generation of people that wasn't like relevant to me as a whatever, 16 or 17 year old. Totally. I mean, also, I think First Cut is the deepest aged her before her time almost. Right. It was such a like AC thing. After Soak of the Sun, you got to follow that up with another banger. Give the people what they want. Yes. Call Max Martin. Right. Let's yeah, go. Exactly. <laughs> But I think that was so just a little bit snoozy. Yeah, okay, so we get it. You were really not a fan of The First Cut is the Defense. I get it. <laughs> no, but I love Cheryl. It was just, why that song? Yes, well, it's just also very on the nose for her, too, I think. Yeah. She releases her last platinum record, Wildflower, in 2005, which almost feels like a rejoinder in some ways to me to the Globe Sessions in the sense that it's kind of quiet, down-tempo, definitely feels reactionary to the pop gloss of Come On, Come On, what do you make of this record? Also inspired by her relationship with Lance Armstrong, her erstwhile relationship. How much did she know about the cheating? <laughs> I mean, talk about the celebrity. This relationship was big tabloid fodder, as I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a mess. I mean, again, she's back with Jeff Trott, yeah. now her longtime collaborator. Yes. And it's basically just the two of them, plus John Shanks, aforementioned Ashley Simpson guy. Yes, yes. And I think projecting a little bit, she might have just been kind of worn out right. by the whole 
thing. She's like been in the weeds of pop stardom for a long time. When I spoke with her and I was kind of like, do you get tired of playing your hits? Obviously, she has such big things that she has to play at every concert. And she mentioned reaching a point, and I would guess it was around the time this album was released, where she was like, I really couldn't stand it. I got so sick of all I want to do and so sick of Soak Up the Sun and so sick of all that stuff that I was just over it. She was like, I really had to step back and regroup. And I feel like this came at the end where she was at the end of her rope a little bit. So it's maybe not the ideal representation of the artiste Sheryl Crow that we know and love. I wonder if she was trying to figure out what she was supposed to do. What is a Sheryl Crow album in 2005 supposed to sound like? If Sheryl emerged and was even a bit of an outlier in her own time, at least there was a real home for this type of, as you said, woman with a guitar. That was a thing. I feel like in this era, even if you're dealing with pop rock, you're thinking about Kelly Clarkson. You're not thinking about Bonnie Raitt or Liz Fair. I mean, you're in a very different moment in pop. It's almost like... Like, maybe Cheryl just needed to do maybe what she ended up doing in some ways, which is just fully embracing her mom rock, dad rock vibes. Yeah. She's released a lot of albums since then. What are some of your favorites? Are there particular highlights you'd like to point out about Cheryl's post-peak commercial era music that have really spoken to you? I mean, I think her sort of leaning into her elder stateswoman type status is fun. I mean, Threads is good. She very intentionally sort of went back and collaborated with a ton of artists who either influenced her or who she influenced or who she felt were kindred spirits. And the country digression of Feels Like Home, it's so wild. She was opening for George Strait after she released this album. Wow. What a trip to have been brought out by the Rolling Stones and then open for George Strait. She's been on a journey. Very Cheryl. That speaks to her whole DNA in a weird way. Totally. For this country album, she brought the house. I mean, these are all the songwriters that we now see as kingmakers. Shane McNally, Brandy Clark, Chris Stapleton writing songs, Luke Laird, Natalie Hemby. This is a star cast and it's 2013. This is right as Casey Musgraves is about to turn the corner. And those are all her collaborators too. So that's such an interesting little window into her being ahead of that curve, or at least on it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that also sets up one of the last few questions I want to ask you, which is, what is Sheryl Crow's impact or legacy? Like, how do we see the long tail of Sheryl Crow on artists that we're consuming now today or anyone that's really come after her? Whether it's in terms of her music POV or who she was in the landscape or her persona, her stardom, her approach to the whole thing, where do we most obviously see the impact and legacy of Sheryl Crow in your mind? I mean, we've seen it a lot especially recently, just any, I don't want to narrow her influence to women, but I do think that plenty of contemporary like girls with guitars, heavy air quotes there that I'm making, are looking to Cheryl and attempting to sort of use a similar lens and a similar way of making music and are even covering her. I know like B.B. Bridgers, I want to say, Boy Genius. These are people who have covered Cheryl Crow songs. And Not Strong Enough was a specific homage to Strong Enough, the single from the Boy Genius record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I forgot about that.
even Maren Morris has taken a somewhat Crowian trajectory. Her first album screams Cheryl. For sure. And so I think this way of owning your musical abilities and skills and unapologetically embracing a pop fluency aesthetic, that's what Cheryl brought us. She was like the conduit between I like old music, but I want to make songs that resonate with a contemporary audience. Yes. And especially for women, I think her influence is super notable and felt there. I mean, even like Haim. For sure. I thought about Haim so many times during this. Yeah. A lot of Haim, for sure. She just sort of treads very lightly between all of these different genres in a way that is not self-conscious. Yes. She's not worried about any of it. Besides trying to prove herself more broadly as a musician, she's not really trying to prove any specific thing about being cool or right. whatever. She's just sort of trying to get credit for what she has accomplished, you know, and for her abilities. A hundred percent. I mean, in a way, I think Taylor is a descendant. I mean, not in necessarily like her songwriting style per se, but treading the line between country, rock, and pop. Mm-hmm. Being a woman who is somehow conversant both with the heartland and the coast, you know, there's this very specific idea that I think Cheryl represents. I was reading Karen Gans's profile of her before we got on the mic today. And I mean, everyone from Bethany Costino from Best Coast to St. Vincent. There's like a lot of women that see themselves in the sort of lineage of Cheryl. And again, as we sort of began the conversation, she really is an entity unto herself. One of the most gratifying or interesting parts of this deep dive for me was Cheryl Crow is very much Cheryl Crow. Like it's hard to position her exactly because I think she really did blaze her own trail and like do her own thing and march to the beat of her own drummer in a way that is inspiring about her. And yes, not trying to be cool, but as a result... Being very cool. Yes, very (laughs) cool. She's super cool and she's still super cool. I was watching her perform in 2022 at some show. First of all, she looks fucking incredible. She looks so good and she sounds amazing and she just is cool. These songs are timeless. They're really unlodged from time in a way that I think has made them feel like they're part of the American songbook or something like that in a powerful way. That was really touching to me about listening to all this work. Yeah, and I mean, to come full circle from when I talked to her, just because I don't want to leave her on a negative note, she did say she was able to come back around and now she really enjoys playing her hits. And that's clear when you see her, like you've mentioned. I mean, she sounds awesome and it's so special for her to be able to give that gift to her fans of like playing these songs that mean so much to them. And I think it sounds like she's really come around to sort of feeling that way too after getting understandably weary of the grind of celebrity. Absolutely. I mean, she's able to now exist in the poptimism era in which we don't have to hate Cheryl Crow because she made pop songs that have incredible Totally. (laughs) I'm sure it feels good to her to be named as an influence and to finally get some of that credit that she's, I mean, to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. (laughs) To finally get some of this credit. And to be a notable Bucks fan. I don't think we can talk about Cheryl Crow without talking about her love for Chris Middleton. Yes. Also, like, getting in the Rock Hall, like, that's gotta have been on Cheryl's bucket list more so even than, like, your average person. And now I know that money comes in, but the fact is, it's not enough to pay my taxes and I can't cry anymore. All right, so final question. Let's talk about the pop pantheon here. Right. Where does Cheryl Crow 
fit into the pop pantheon. I think this is an interesting conversation because she's a little bit of an iconoclast in some ways, not exactly like a pop star in the traditional sense of the word, but also had a lot of pop success. I'm curious if you have a theory on this. Yeah, I was perusing the rubric and contemplating this question. I mean, I think the obvious answer is tier three. Yes, very emblematic of her era, for sure. Yeah, she's maybe at the top of tier three, I would say. She's edging toward tier two, but maybe doesn't have quite as many hits as you're thinking about. But I do think her level of influence almost takes her up to that second tier, just because there are so many people who are like name checking her now and are being like, yes, Cheryl is a legend. I agree. I think that was literally exactly what I was going to say, which is I feel like she walks right up to the line. I mean, she had a really long run of success. What are we going to name as the canonical Cheryl hits that have transcended? I think it's all I want to do strong enough. Every day is a winding road. If it makes you happy, change would do you good? Question mark. Soak up the sun. Favorite mistake. Yeah. I think that's a good list. Picture. Picture. Yeah. Picture. Yeah. So that's eight. Yeah. A solid eight hits and they all occurred in under 10 years or in exactly 10 years. Right. Yeah. So I would say that's where I would put her too. Tippy top of tier three feels right to me. Your rubric made me really want a Cheryl Crow Super Bowl halftime show. <laughs> oh, she would eat that. But they'll never do it because they don't do those types of artists these days, it feels like. And again, I think maybe that speaks to why she's in tier three maybe a little bit is that like she doesn't feel quite in a position to do that in 2023. She almost could. I feel like Usher is only increments above Cheryl Crow on this hypothetical rubric. What about Shania? Where do you see like her versus Shania? It's tough. I mean, Shania was bigger by several orders of magnitude. From the one album being like the biggest album of the history of time. I think Shania is probably tier two just because Shania is... It's Shania. It was crazy. And it's still like her renaissance right now is so wild. People are totally coming back around to Shania. Right. And more of just like an overt pop figure, like a more just real pop star diva in more of the classic sense, I think. Okay, I'm good with tier three. Last question for you, Natalie, before we get out of here. What's an underrated Sheryl Crow song? Something that we maybe haven't touched on today, but is like a personal favorite of yours that you'd like to put the audience on to and that we could send the show out on. I was thinking about this before we talked. I was going to say you're an original, but we did talk about that one a little bit. Can that count? Yeah, sure. It's not like a single. No, let's do it. It's fun and it's not one of her big ones. I also do genuinely like the song she did with Bonnie and Mavis on Threads. It's a nice song. Live Wire. Maybe we should go out on that one just because it connects her to some of her most important influences and that feels integral to the Sheryl Crow idea. Exactly. All right, so let's go out on Live Wire by Sheryl Crow, Mavis Staples, and Bonnie Reed. Natalie, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for having me. So there you have it. Pop Pantheon Cheryl Crow now officially in tier three. The judgment is rendered. I want to say thank you to the fabulous Natalie Weiner for being such a great guest. To Russ Martin for everything he does to make the show happen every week. And PJ Vernetti for his help editing this episode. And Alex Lobo for her help with the artwork. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to Pop Pantheon wherever you are listening to it right now. Follow us on social at Pop Pantheon Pod. I'm at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. Get our merch at poppantheonpod.com. Patreon at patreon.com slash poppantheon. Gorgeous, gorgeous LA on February 17th, this Saturday at Los Globos. Gorgeous, gorgeous New York on March 9th at the Sultan Room. And until we meet again, have a wonderful life. Bye-bye.
just start to blow me up my feet again. I got